Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Future Proof Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Uh, if you're anything like me, you must be buzzing off all the astronomers, buzzing off all the JWST images. And this episode, we are going to have a chat with uh, Tom Ray from the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies about his work on one of the instruments and what it means for Irish research, but also talk about the pretty pictures. If you'd like to see some of them, by the way, I'm sure you've already um, done so, but they're on our Twitter page. We're at News Talk Science. If you'd like to comment on this week's uh, podcast, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. First, though, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week that aren't about the telescope, because we're going to talk about that in a bit. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from NUI Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield. Shane, our first story has to do with quantum entanglement. Yes, we've spoken about quantum entanglement a few times on the show recently. So I I figure listeners are probably uh, very familiar with me saying it's spooky action at a distance, which that you can have two atoms at great remove that can be so-called entangled so that, that, that they're both in a in a sort of a superposition where um, they're kind of mushed up together. And once you take a measurement of one side, you can instantly... Uh, get the the other side to pop out the same result, and so this is so-called spooky action at a distance because, in theory, the distance between those two objects doesn't matter. In other words, as soon as you measure on one side, you instantly have the outcome at the other side, which is really cool, but also really weird, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you would think, right, sure, it could travel faster than the speed of light, which we know is the maximum speed that anything can travel in the universe. But it can't. And and this really takes a little bit of thinking. So whilst in theory, you could have uh, two entangled objects separated by massive distance, like light years, um, you wouldn't know that the, uh, the measurement was successful until you were able to talk from one end to the other. So in other words, if Chessman was um, on, a st- uh, on a planet two light years away and I was here on Earth and I did the measurement and I have to assume that the, uh, the answer popped out at Chessman's end, we'd have to talk to each other to know that that worked. And so information about the experiment cannot travel faster than the speed of light. And so that's how we know it doesn't break that, uh, break that rule. So, so we will never be able to communicate faster than the speed of light. But we assume that this entanglement, where if, if one side says zero, the other side says one, we assume that that happens instantaneously and so therefore faster than the speed of light. Yes. And, and we can use that to, as, as a fantastic way for us to, to get around uh, people hacking into data. Right. So this is what ultimately this is about, is about creating safe networks. So um, it's built around uh, the idea of a quantum state. So what they've done in this experiment is they've taken two atoms of rubidium and they've optically trapped them. So they're very cold and both of them are excited with a laser. And what happens when you excite the atom with a, a laser is it, it rearranges its electronic configuration and then it relaxes. And as a result of the relaxation, it gives out a little bit of energy as a photon of light. And due to a quirk, the polarization of the light, so one effect of the light that comes out is entangled with a property of the atom called its spin. So um, you, you have this entanglement. And so you have two rubidium atoms 
um, and they're both entangled, you have a way to connect them through light. And so the whole system is entangled. And if you put in some sort of an um, sort of a detector at some point down the system, you can do the measurement and you can you can kind of control this network. And, and what's really cool in this experiment is that they've been able to do it with a an optical cable that's a whopping 33 kilometers long. That's that's incredible. And they've also been able to do it uh, where the, the photon or the piece of light that's carrying the information between the two rubidium atoms is at the wavelength used in the telecommunication industry, which, as everyone would know, is about 1500 nanometers. So it's a color of light. <laughs> and they use that particular color of light because it's associated with low loss. So if you send a signal out from point A to point B, you want to make sure it gets to the to the other end. It doesn't need a booster along the way. So, so they managed to excite this atom. So it fired off a photon. It traveled how many kilometers? 33 kilometers. 33 kilometers, kilometers yeah. down to the other end, carrying the information of this spin to be able to match the, the, the atom that also had the, the other part of that key, essentially. So, yeah, effectively, the the light between them is the bridge that entangles both atoms. So you can have an atom at point A and an atom at point B. They're separated by 33 kilometers and you can entangle the whole system by the, the, the photons that move between them. Isn't it incredible? Like it really is. It's it's absolutely mind blowing. It does. It completely blows my mind so much so that I'll move on to the next story, which is about sunlight jessamine, which apparently makes men hungry. What? Yeah. I found this story really interesting. It's about why both of you might find yourselves eating a bit more this summer, but I won't. And not due to the patriarchy, um, but due to the effects (laughs) of a hormone called ghrelin. So there were researchers from Tel Aviv University who started out by looking at just a large nutritional study of about 3,000 people um, for abnormalities. And they found that men, but not women in this study, were increasing their food intake during the summer by about 300 calories a day. So not a huge amount, but definitely noticeable. Um, that is a lot, I think. It's it's a good bit. And they did a follow-up where they basically got volunteers to um, be exposed to 25 minutes of midday sunlight on a clear day um, and measured a bunch of different things and found that this hormone, ghrelin, was increased in the men but not the women, which is important because it's a hormone that boosts appetite. It's produced by your stomach. Um, and they did a follow-up study as well using mice, where, again, the mice were exposed to UVB rays. They ate more. They had more ghrelin in their blood. And it's interesting because you wouldn't think that just going out and sitting in the sun would make you hungry, um, but apparently it can. But again, you know, only for for men or male mice. Uh, and they think this is because the effect of estrogen, um, you know, the, the hormone which is more present in women than men, serves to negate this increased ghrelin production. So men are sitting out in the sun and getting hungry, women not so much. And you can see this effect in the summer, um, wherever you are. So I found it really surprising because like, like that that the activation of this hormone could be even related to sun and apparently yeah. it it gets even more interesting because ghrelin also reduces inflammation and blood pressure it's actually been previously linked to reduced cardiovascular disease um through solar exposure so this is kind of implying as well you know obviously lots of sun exposure is not great um but moderate amounts of sun exposure can be linked to reduced heart disease which is again a, a kind of surprising link in the body is there anything to do with um, a sort of genetic uh, hereditary system where 
you know, being out during the summer versus the winter, for example. I mean, I'm spitballing here, but did they hypothesize why, why it might be? Is it that, you know, during the summer we were more active, we need more energy, to, and men hunted versus women who, I mean, I don't even know if that's necessarily true, but has there been a hypothesis? What a rambly question. Has there been a hypothesis proposed? Um, so not so far, but it's definitely, it, it's a reasonable speculation, right? That if you're spending time outside, it could be because you're doing more sort of work uh, and that might be a useful thing to link to hunger in some way. Um, but I think it really gets down to the fact too that a lot of these hormones uh, in the body have multiple activation mechanisms and we don't fully understand them yet. I mean, there's been a lot of research as well looking at ghrelin sensitivity um, in people and the links to obesity, right? And the question of you know whether hunger and satiety are being properly activated in different people and that different people might be sensitive to the hormones in different ways. So like to me, that was already very interesting, but connecting it to something like sunlight is is just super surprising. Yeah, well, certainly to me. Um, our third story, Shane, has to do with salt. Yeah, are you a, a salty snack or a sweet snack kind of guy? I, I'm, I'm at all. I take it all. Yeah. No, well, they're all bad for you. And um, this is, uh, <laughs> this is the, you know, this is what, this is what it's about. So salt is bad for you. Sugar, we know, is bad for you. And interestingly, a paper published this morning in The Lancet says alcohol is bad for everyone under 40. Uh, I suspect most of the authors are just above 40, but we'll come back to that perhaps another time. This is a study on salt and it's looked at half a million Britons and their self-reported salt intake. It's part of a wider uh, data set called the UK Biobank study, which is incredible. And so when people joined the study, they were asked to self-report about their salt intake at the table. Now, so this is a very crude measure of how salty your food is. It's asking if you put salt on your dinner and how often do you do that? So it does ignore the fact that 70% of the salt we intake comes from processed foods. Um, so on, only a small amount comes from, you know, the salt cellar. But it is a, a kind of a crude measure of your your liking uh, of, of salty foods or not. They also did um, a urine test with a lot of these people to see the amount of salt that was in their urine. And they wow. followed them then, uh, this half a million, um, for, for on average about nine years. And unfortunately, many of them died, but all from random causes. And they found that there was an effect uh, between people who said that they regularly or always put salt on their dinner and dying younger. Uh, they found that um, it, it decreased their life expectancy. So for those who were regular salt users, there was a 28% increase of dying prematurely compared to those that never took it. So wow. at 50 years old, men uh, who always add salt had life expectancies that were two to three years shorter, where women were one and a half years shorter. Now, when I read these stories, I'm always skeptical and I look at the things they control for because I would have assumed poverty was the big thing here. As in, if you're not eating healthy food, it might be because you don't have a lot of money. They did control for all of these things like gender, lifestyle, um, your socioeconomic status, whether you smoke, whether you have heart condition, etc. Um, other uh, researchers that have read about it have said, of course, don't remove salt entirely from your lifestyle. It's not like smoking. It's not like getting rid of it entirely will just do you good. You do need some salt. Um, but the thing is, it's about getting that sweet spot. And it turns out probably just get rid of the salt off the table is a helpful way to start. We, 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 I read this two days ago and we, we have banned the salt cellar from the table because we use it in cooking and that's enough. Um, Jessamine, our final story has to do with contraceptives for squirrels. 
Yes, uh, a niche which has long needed to be filled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is to do with with grey squirrels, right? Which are invasive in the UK and Ireland, and in, in fact all of Europe. They're from North America originally. Um, they're twice the size of the red squirrel, the native European squirrel that you would normally find around these parts. Um, and as so unfortunately, you know, with many stories, we have these invasive species coming in, um, taking our resources, take, taking our jobs. Uh, but in the That's case you, of the gray, <laughs> that is, I am the gray squirrel. You're the North um, American coming in here, taking our jobs. Mm-hmm. Twice the size of both of you. Uh, <laughs> but so in the UK, they've been looking at whether there was a way to sort of promote red squirrels coming back um, into more of their habitats um, as opposed to the gray squirrels. And this isn't just a sort of squirrel xenophobia. It's because gray squirrels actually cause a lot of habitat damage um, in the UK as well as Ireland. Uh, they're, they're big. They do a lot of stuff. But one of the things they do is they pull bark off of trees um, which is super damaging to the trees, um, both in a habitat sense and then also in terms of you know timber loss, things like that. Uh, there was a study a few years ago finding that gray squirrels supposedly cost the UK tens of millions of pounds a year. Um, wow. Yeah. So what the uh, UK Animal and Plant Health Agency have done is they've developed a contraceptive drug for gray squirrels. Uh, that reduces- I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a condom. It's a drug. No. Well, it's very hard to get squirrels to put on condoms. We won't go into why. Um, But this drug can be put into their food to reduce production of their sex hormones. So it leaves both male and female squirrels infertile. Um, And they did a study where basically they put out little bait boxes with doors that only gray squirrels can open. And then they put little hazelnut paste inside that had the contraceptive drug inside it. Um, And they found that this was really effective. And basically the idea is that then... You know, you're you're slowly getting rid of gray squirrels, but not by culling them, which is you know expensive and also sad. Um, but just sort of letting them live out their little squirrel lives, and then you know there's no more squirrels, and we go back to you know the beautiful small red squirrel, um, which also doesn't rip bark off trees and just sort of mess up the place. Um, I mean, it's not so- a perfect solution, is it? Because those poor squirrels don't get to reproduce, and probably will help pay a fortune in. Um, squirrel therapy trying to figure out what went wrong (laughs) that's true um but it is an approach that's worked for other kinds of animals um that you end up with too much of things like you know pigeons um deer feral cats it's a kind of non-violent way to reduce an unwanted population um although as you say the cost in therapy is incalculable (laughs) dr shane bergen from ecd dr jessamine fairfield from anyway galway thanks as always Now, of course, the biggest science news story this week was the release of some incredibly spectacular views of the cosmos from the James Webb Space Telescope, which include the deepest infrared view of our universe that has ever been taken. To discuss this incredible achievement is one Irish man who has been involved in the project for two decades, Professor Tom Ray, Director of the School of Cosmic Physics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. He joins me now. Tom, This must be an extremely exciting week for you. Tell me uh, how much of a a thrill it has been to be able to finally see these images that you have essentially been working on for quite some time. Oh, yes, absolutely. A big, big thrill. Um, As you said, I've been working on this project for 20 years and it's been a very slow build-up. But once I saw those images... You know, you really felt it was all worth it. And I've been in this business now for nearly, you know, 40 years. So um, 
I don't often get awestruck, but uh, on this occasion, I definitely was. Um, they were just amazing, and the quality was amazing. And there was also uh, a sense of relief for us that it was all working as well as, uh, as it did, because there were so many things that uh, could have gone wrong. Um, you only have to go back to the the first major telescope in space, the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and when that was launched all those years ago, it was rapidly realized there were uh, problems with the mirror. They had to send up a shuttle mi mission to try and fix it. Um, in our case, we're much, much further away from the Earth. We're talking 1.5 million kilometers away. Whereas uh, in the case of Hubble, you know, I, I jokingly say if your car could drive upwards, you'd get there in about four or five hours. Um, <laughs> you, you're not going to make 1.5 million kilometers in four or five hours. So talk to us about the difference between the Hubble and this JWST uh, telescope. What is um, the, the major differences between the two? Well, the, the, the first and perhaps obvious one is... Uh, the Webb telescope is so much bigger. It has got um, six times the collecting area. It's six times the size of Hubble. And so that helps, obviously, in terms of looking deeper into space. But a second major difference is that it operates well into what we call the infrared part of the spectrum. So for your listeners, that's, you know, heat radiation. And, and why that's important? Well, there's a couple of reasons why it's important. The first thing, as uh, perhaps some listeners would know, the universe is expanding. And it, it means that um, as we look further and further away, uh, we're looking further back in time. But another effect is that the radiation gets redder and redder. It's a bit like uh, if you ever hear an ambulance coming towards you, the pitch of it goes up, and as the ambulance goes away, the pitch goes down. So essentially everything's moving away from us, and so the pitch is going down. And so instead of optical light, we get more and more infrared light or heat radiation. So to look at galaxies and the first stars, we have to actually look in the infrared. So one of the things that might strike you when you look at a picture of this telescope is uh, is the mirror itself is not uh, like a silver mirror, like your mirror at home. It's actually gold. And why that is, is because gold is a perfect reflector in the infrared. So if your eyes could tune into the infrared, it'd be just like a silver mirror. Uh, and so for that reason, when we want to look back in time, uh, we need to look in the infrared. A second reason is that we now realize there are thousands and thousands of planets out there, and we're trying to investigate how stars and planets form. And the problem when you're trying to investigate how stars and planets form is that they uh, it's very dusty environment, so we again use the infrared to penetrate through these clouds to actually see new stars and planets in formation. I mean, people might think, you know, the stars are there. They've always been there. Um, yes, but new stars are forming all the time. And by looking at new stars and looking at the area around them, you can actually discover how our own solar system was born all those billions of years ago. So you used a phrase there, looking back in time. And that is what this telescope allows us to do. Some of the photographs that we're seeing are of 
stars that existed billions of years ago. Can you explain how that's possible? Yeah, well, I mean, if, um, you know, if, if you're in the room with me, uh, there's a very, very small delay in terms of the light from you reaching me. The sound even takes longer again. But if you go to the moon, for example, we're seeing the moon as it was uh, over a second and a half ago. And the sun, if it was to disappear right now, we wouldn't know about it for over eight minutes because that's how long the light takes. That's, astronomically speaking, they are really in your backyard, mm. right? Uh, it's nothing. Um, I mean, the nearest star to us is four light years away. That means it takes four years for the light to reach us. But when we look at galaxies, we're talking millions of light years. So we really are looking way back in time. Talk to me about your work on the mid-infrared instrument on the telescope, because this is um, a hugely crucial instrument that will yield such extraordinary images um, for years to come. What is it and what was your work on it? Okay, so uh, we're working on what's called the mid-infrared. In other words, that means kind of the longer heat radiation waves. Right. Uh, But why it's important, first of all, to do that from space rather than the ground is if you imagine, you know, you're Wicklow or somewhere and you're looking up at the night sky, the night sky is very impressive. But what a lot of people don't realize is the atmosphere of our Earth is radiating energy and it's radiating heat waves. So we're literally when we're trying to look at a distant galaxy or a new star, we're literally trying to find, um, uh, you know, a candle behind a furnace. And the furnace is the sky that we're looking up at. So um, if we go into space, uh, then we get away from this problem. And in fact, where we go is uh, well beyond the moon, as I said, 1.5 million kilometers. And the temperature out there is about minus 230 degrees Celsius. And in fact, our instrument has to be cooled even more, and it's nearly minus 270 degrees Celsius. So, I mean, really, really cold environment. Um, And our involvement was to, uh, we were responsible for filters, basically elements that break up the wavelengths of light in the instrument, and so you're uh, talking about the, the hardware itself the hardware itself yep. so we were responsible for hardware designing then, it presumably rather than actually manufacturing it well what we did was uh, uh so the manufacturing we got done abroad but we did the testing of it because um, there's a lot of kind of nasty um, substances and so forth. So we did the testing, we made sure the uh, specifications worked and so forth. And But that was many years in trying to do that. As soon as then we delivered the instrument to, uh, to NASA, then we switched to the software development and the analysis development and the support. And, you know, like w- one of the guys... Uh, from here, Paddy Kavanagh was out in Baltimore, where the center for the James Webb is, working there for a couple of months, trying to make sure everything was uh, operating properly. 
one of the immense benefits of having your expertise on these instruments is that you are guaranteed time on this extraordinary new telescope in space. What does that mean for Irish astronomical research? Oh, it's 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 enormous. I mean, in terms of the return, we've got literally hundreds of hours on the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, I mean, if you were to to translate it into monetary terms, you're talking millions and millions of dollars. I was going to say euro, but dollars, euro, it's all the same. It it is today, yeah. (laughs) So what are you going to do with that time? What what are you keen to photograph and what what do you think the interests of um, research is at the the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies? What, What are you hoping to get? So we're, we're doing various things. Uh, my own area of interest, and we have a, a team now working on this, is looking at um, young stars. And by young, you get very, very blasé about the figures when it comes to distance, but you get blasé about the figures when it comes to age as well. A young star would be something less than about a million years old. That is a baby star. I mean, when you consider it, our sun is about 5,000 million years old so a million years old is very young the star is still forming and we've realized only in the past sort of 10 to 15 years that surrounding a young star is a kind of disc these discs actually form planetary systems but they also produce these supersonic jets that stretch for light years and we've been investigating these jets and we'll be um, imaging them with the Webb telescope and imaging them in different elements because we're interested to find out what different elements are present. It's all telling us about the early conditions in our solar system because this is exactly the same process that would have gone on when the Earth and the other planets formed. It's been really heartwarming to see all of the astronomers on my Twitter feed lose their marbles over some of these images. I'm wondering, was there one that particularly struck you in comparison to to what we've seen with Hubble, which uh, gave us great images, but now that the difference, as you'll see on our Twitter page, uh, the difference between these two I- uh, types of images is, is like night and day. Was there one particular image of the ones that have been released so far that made you realise how successful this project you've worked on has been? Well, to be honest, there were two, right? The first one was the one that was released by President Biden. I mean, a couple of days before the release, you know, the the, the astronomers like myself, there was about uh, 80 of us who've been involved in the mission for many, many years. We uh, got together with NASA and we, we saw the images, we knew what to expect. I was still awestruck on that, on that occasion. I knew, um, so I knew what was being released on, on, on Tuesday and that. But the first image which shows uh, it's a deep field of galaxies. You see plenty of distant galaxies in it. And there are two things that struck me. One is that that image was done in a fraction of the time that the Hubble did something that was even comparable. And and it did, and the web one is deeper again, right? So the Hubble took two weeks to do what Webb did in a few hours, and and as I say, it was even better again. So that's the first thing. But the other thing that 
I really find, even now, kind of mind-blowing, is that that area on the sky you are looking at when you look at that image is the size of a grain of rice when you hold it at arm's length. So you can imagine that multiplied thousands and thousands of times all over the all over the sky. So you you know you suddenly realize there are billions of galaxies containing uh, typically a hundred thousand million stars each. I mean, yeah, the phenomenal. numbers the, the numbers really blow my mind. And actually, um, one of the my favorite images from that list was the Carina Nebula and uh, the beauty of of that image really does make me very excited about the things that are to come and and I think it's just a really lovely time for science do you feel like you are right exactly where you need to be in the universe right now absolutely and in fact that was my second image as well and I love that image because it's actually of a region of new stars and new planets forming. And when I look at it, I can see those jets that I would talked about, the supersonic jets, but I can see young stars forming. It's just, uh, it's just an amazing uh, image. But now we have the advantage of the, uh, the infrared and we can see actually even through that cloud, through the Carina Nebula, and uh, see really really young stars which are really embedded and so difficult to uh, analyze otherwise so yeah that was an absolutely striking image and uh, but i was kind of saying to myself well that's the area you work in and you'll be a bit biased (laughs) in it but it's good to hear other people think that's a, a really really impressive image well lots more excitement to come tom ray from the dublin institute of advanced studies thank you very much for joining us Thanks, Jonathan. It has happened in um, times past that uh, people would work on a project such as this for 20 or 30 years, and then the satellite would just explode or the rocket didn't launch properly. And all of that work, all of that effort is thrown in the bin and getting that work back is just impossible. And I can only imagine how nervous Tom must have been uh, at the launch. But fantastic news that we're getting and will get for many years to come, these incredible photographs. Uh, All right, time to look back at some of your comments from last week. There haven't been a huge amount of them, apparently. We were talking about birds and how, how we used to think that birds couldn't smell until quite recently. And someone said, so is there a scent that would scare off seagulls? You know, that's probably something worthwhile to investigate from a commercial point of view. I'm sure there is a non-seagull friendly smell. The problem is creating one that is pleasant for goldfinch or bullfinch or any of the beautiful native birds that we have that aren't seagulls. Um, Or I guess maybe it's okay to have a little bit of whatever this scent is around um, a place that is predominantly inhabited by seagulls. But like, you know, we share the planet with these birds and we kind of have messed up their world. So they're just encroaching on ours a little bit to grab a few bags of chips. Uh, I kind of say, you know, we asked for it and live and let live with the seagulls is my throat, is my thinking. Um, we were talking about a hangover pill and uh, whether or not that might be useful. There's one on the market called Merkel. Um Claims that it might work, but it's only a very small study. Interesting to see how it develops. Stephen in Dublin says, Paddy's Bar in Sliema, Malta, which has a Garda sign outside, recommends don't stop, keep going as a hangover cure. I've found that it works. 
Well, Stephen, you see, the problem with that is, <laughs> need, I, need I explain, is that well, at some point you must stop. At some point you must stop or you will die. And, and then what happens next is, is, uh, is made all the worse the more you persist. I mean, that's simple biology and indeed physics. Um, that's it from us on this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Aidan McKelvey, Stephen Daunt, Simon Keane and Jojo Cardozo on sound. We'll be back with more in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.